0: Are we sweating?
1: <laughs> Are you recycling your sweat? So that I can drink it at a later point in time? When was the last time that you used your own spit to make coffee? I've never
0: had the pleasure. <laughs>
1: coffee anyone?
0: I don't reuse a lot of my body's moisture these days. <laughs> I don't know about you.
2: <laughs>
1: my heart is bursting out of my chest right now. I can't believe we're here for like a number of reasons. It's episode 100 the centennial edition and dune which has been delayed for i think over a year yeah we just saw it we saw it we watched
0: dune in imax just now mm. in real imax i'm i'm still i'm still drinking it in I've been waiting for this movie for years. You've been
1: referencing it, I think, in almost every other episode about how excited you are for this. Yeah. During the pandemic. I couldn't shut up. You were talking about how scared you were that you wouldn't be able to see it. Yeah, for multiple reasons.
0: <laughs> Chiefly amongst them, the pandemic, which you may have heard about. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. We just saw Dune, and uh, yeah. I am... Uh, This feels like a kind of an out-of-body experience. Imagine anticipating something. Well, I mean, you don't have to imagine because you've lived through similar experiences since you're a little bit older than I am. Yeah. And you've seen your childhood imagination come to life Mm -hmm. on the big screen. A few times. Multiple times now. This is probably as close as I'll ever get to experiencing what you've experienced with your Marvel movies in the past. Some Um, of them. Because I didn't have comics as a kid, but I had books, movies, games, And Dune is one of those things that has influenced me really beyond compare, with a few exceptions. But in science fiction, really only, like, one other exception, which would be probably Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game series. In terms of, like, classic 20th century science fiction literature. And to see it brought to life in such an incredible way. In a respectful way, of course, for the source material, but also with such vision for making something for cinema like mm-hmm. to adapt something that is so deeply entrenched in its medium as as book as novel yeah. as literature yeah. and yeah. to bring it so keenly and adeptly into another medium which is film cinema yeah yeah, yeah i'm i'm floored uh, i'm I mean, also
1: like riveted i could not agree more with what you're saying and I, I especially need- after having just read it and yeah. being on the hype train as well and i always had total faith
0: in Denis Villeneuve, because of not just every film he's made, but specifically the way he approached Blade Runner.
1: And every movie he's ever touched.
0: Yeah, his whole... (laughs) I think he's continued his streak of just being incredible. He's insane. We really can't give him
1: enough praise. I I think he's like... I mean, he's 100% my favorite filmmaker today. He yeah. basically re- replaced Spielberg and Fincher for me.
0: And to think he's done it all in the last 10 years, essentially. Yeah. I think he'd done smaller features, but his f- coming in with from incendies into his English language films, mm-hmm. I think that's all basically been in the last 10 to 12 years. Yeah, What an incredible run yeah. for a decade. Totally.
1: I agree. But yeah, we did a podcast about the book. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about dune because we're going to be jumping into who denny is in this episode sort of in a return to form you know like our analysis episodes we're going to be jumping into denny as a filmmaker and then discussing what makes this movie of dune part one so amazing and it is part one but if you yeah i know but if you want to learn more about frank herbert and the book and what makes the book so good and the reasons that he wrote it and the whole story of Dune and the terminology. Go listen to our last podcast, our last episode. But here we are again, episode 100.
2: Shut it up!
1: Before we jump into the movie, let's talk about Denny as a filmmaker.
0: Yeah. I mean, how...
1: I, I CEO entrepreneur, <laughs> Denny Venu.
0: <laughs> I, I think I would agree with you. He's probably... I mean, he is. I'm not... I, I don't mean to beat around the bush since I think what cemented it for me was his Blade Runner, but he is my favorite person yeah. working in the industry in Hollywood.
1: Blade Runner 2049 was one of those movies that was an actual impossible task to recapture, so to speak, the magic that Ridley Scott created back in 83, I think it was, 82? 82. 82 was not only a task, but he accomplished it with flying colors. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Unprecedented. And it didn't do well at the box office because nobody really wants to pay for like a three-hour art film sequel to the original Blade Runner 1982, but it really is the most expensive art film ever made. It is insane. I mean, I, Gabe and I couldn't recommend it enough. It was by far my favorite film of that year. It was 2018, 2017.
0: Yeah. Basically what he replicated with Dune is that he perfectly captured the essence of what he was coming from while still making it something that is forward-facing and unique and had its own identity. And uh, so I, I love both of those movies. But if we want to talk briefly about his history. Yeah, let's do it. Most people know him from bursting onto the scene from Hollywood in 2013, where he made two movies, released them in the same year, which was Prisoners and Enemy. Both great films. Yeah, we, like we said, they're all great. But even before that, he was doing, I think they were all French language, since he's French-Canadian. He did Polytechnique in 2009 and Incendies in 2010, both incredible films. And you can see the inception, if you will, of his style. But yeah, then he did Prisoners and Enemy, and then Sicario in 2015, which was my first any film and was the, where I immediately recognized how incredible this is. And I know I've talked with Stephen a bit before about, because I don't think you, you've never fully understood the appeal for most people of Sicario, right? Like you don't.
1: I don't like the story. I totally understand why people like it. I totally understand. But I, I just don't really like it. I think it's just not my personal favorite film of his. And then he did uh, Arrival the next year. That movie blew my mind. I didn't even know what I was getting into. When I, that was the movie that hooked me Yeah. when I first saw it. I I saw Sicario because everyone was on the hype for that. But Arrival was like, oh my gosh, something is happening here. I don't know if I've ever been hit so hard by a reveal uh, <laughs> compared to that movie.
0: Oh, the end? Yeah, where it's... I don't spoil too much in case people haven't seen that one, but it's very good. And then... Yeah. Another year later, he releases Blade Runner 2049. So this man is churning it out. And he's talked about his process before how excellent films. He's just going, like, kind of like Ari Aster did from Hereditary to Midsummer, like with no breaks, just from post production before he's even finished Arrival. He's working on Blade Runner.
1: Yeah. And it I mean was
0: very quick turnaround.
1: Sure. I mean if you look at Prisoners and Enemy, the production on those are a lot more grounded. There's no like visual effects or anything in those films. Mm-hmm. Enemy maybe had a little bit, but it was like four people in that cast and it's not a lot of locations and so it was probably an easier film to make. Although Enemy might be my personal favorite out of the two because <laughs> yeah. of how insane it is. It, he's so good at delivering subtext and keeping things just ambiguous enough to be gripping for the viewer while also delivering the necessary goods to keep a person satiated mm-hmm. while they're watching it, you know, and the audience is satiated. But like, you know, he's done it with every film, every single movie he's gone on to has been that same kind of thing. I was going to compare him sort of to Alejandro and Uratu. I feel like them two as directors right now are sort of neck and neck as far as like being, oh, what's this person going to do next? The one thing that Alejandro does differently than Denny is he, he did The Revenant and Birdman and he's working on another one right now called Limbo but the thing about his movies are a little bit grittier I would say Denny's has this sort of polish to them even when he's filming something like A Planet Full of Sand it still yeah. has this polish to it that and that's why I say he's almost replaced Spielberg because Spielberg had that polish as well like it's so technically proficient it's undeniably good Mm-hmm. And I think Denny has that same quality.
0: He has that every frame of painting sort of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, and the things that he does pick when it comes to doing sci-fi, they're not entirely outlandish. Like, he's not doing... A, a comic book film you know he makes unique and interesting sci-fi much like spielberg did i feel like he almost has picked up that torch you know
0: yeah i think i might have said this in one of the last couple casts but it is like like you said it's not science fiction for the sake of science fiction the setting is in service to the story and yeah. it's just there to be a backdrop for
1: are you talking about dune or about denny's filmmaking
0: Anytime he's approached science fiction okay. like arrival blade runner sure sure sure
1: uh dune yeah, that's the thing that I also loved about Carrie Fukunaga and how I feel like the things that he's done also the setting serves the story. I think that's sort mm-hmm. of the ticket, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's sometimes the thing that Spielberg has lost as time and budgets just move on. If you look at BFG or even like Tintin or something, you're just like, What are you what are you up to these days? It's <laughs> like he's a little lost in the scenery or like even like Ready Player One. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, do you want to say anything more about Denny, really quick? Uh, he's French Canadian. Yeah, and that's why his last name is so hard to pronounce. Vienu, Vinov. I don't know. Vinov? I just
0: I would say I've watched several interviews with him from stuff he's worked on over the past, especially leading up to Dune and him talking about his process. And it's just really refreshing to see someone who, because most people talk about respecting source material, and uh, someone who really not only actually does it, but surrounds themselves with people like in this case, for instance, him bringing Hans Zimmer on to this project. uh, And they both have discussed at length just how much they love and revere Frank Herbert's novel. Mm. And so they really wanted to do it justice. And it's readily apparent that the reverence for that source material just is very exciting, especially when we live in a day and time where everything is being rebooted and remade and remastered in oftentimes a very soulless way. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> we watched a trailer for the new Scream movie before this, and it's just like, it's kind of disappointing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you have yeah. so much classic media that is just kind of being regurgitated in a way that, I mean, I can't...
1: Like Halloween. I deals. don't.
0: I can't hate the player. I have to hate the game because that is what sells. And when you get a... Something that you know you can market and make money off of, that is the the world we live in now, you know? And that's why someone who takes risks like Denny and his team, and Blade Runner was a great example of that, they really swung for the fences and made something that didn't turn as much of a profit, because they took a lot of risks and they made something really artistic and beautiful, and I have just so much respect for that Uh, I mean maybe that's just because that's what I like to see I don't generally want to go to a movie just for entertainment I want to be emotionally and intellectually nourished Hmm. not to again sound pretentious but I want something more out of my theater experience Yeah. yeah
1: let's talk about his team You already mentioned Hans Zimmer did the score.
0: Yeah, returning from their
1: collaboration on Blade Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Yeah.
0: And he really did some incredible work for this. Yeah. If we're to shout out the score for a moment, he even talked about in promotional material for this film, creating new instruments to develop the sound for
1: this world. I feel like that's the thing, like the new hit thing for composers is they have to create a new instrument to be unique, you know?
0: Yeah, and it's cool because Hans Zimmer is
1: oftentimes...
0: We talked a little bit about it on the Bond podcast, how he oftentimes... You can hear a lot of his older scores reprising sure. themselves. Sure. Like in Bond, there were notes of you know his Batman and Inception work. Mm-hmm. Here, I was definitely hearing a little bit of Man of Steel, mm-hmm. but there's still so much original mm-hmm. sound there, and to mm-hmm. hear him still be able to do that after 30, 40 years of working in the industry and at his age. Totally. It was refreshing. Stuff like the Mongolian throat singing in Dune for the Sardaukar. It completely gives them their own identity. We heard a bagpipe. A mm-hmm. little disappointed we didn't get the ballaset. I guess Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck did, in fact, play the ballaset in some of the stuff they shot for this film, but they had to leave, you know, at least 30 minutes of this film on the cutting room floor just to make it accessible for your average audience, or at least more so. The cinematography was done by Greg Frazier, who you will know from Rogue One, Zero Dark 30. Need mm. advice. He worked on The Mandalorian. He's a good cinematographer. He's also
1: doing The Batman with Matt Reeves, that comes out in March, I think. It does. Look, and I don't mean look like the story and the tone. You mean very. But it looks. (laughs) Literally. It's filmed well. It looks like it's filmed well. Yeah.
0: The cinematography is obviously a huge part of Denny's films, and they did a magnificent job here capturing Arrakis. And the dunes and evoking the feel of and in contrast with the idea of an ocean because that's essentially what the dunes represent in this film the way they move even in things as subtle as like the vibrations in the sand which was a really interesting way to visually portray the coming of the worm very cool.
1: And it was written by Denis Villeneuve, John Spates, and Eric Roth. John had worked on, previously, Doctor Strange Prometheus, which is really cool, and the, also the movie Passenger. And Eric Roth has worked on things for years, like Forrest Gump, Munich, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, so a lot of Fincher, Spielberg, Zemeckis stuff. So he's been around for a while. But the writing was amazing because there's not a a whole ton of dialogue. There's enough to give the exposition that you need. Yeah. But a lot of it is going from A to B and doing it well.
0: And like we said in the last cast, it's a very wordy book. So in order for them to translate all that effectively and concisely into a movie, I think... They did a very good job without making it seem, you know, like a slog to get through the exposition.
1: Yeah, and it was edited by Joe Walker, who basically has done everything that Denny has done. He also edited 12 Years a Slave. The
0: editing was important here, too, with all the visions they had to show. Yes, extremely. And I think the real star of the show here, though... Production design? Yeah. Yeah. Is the production design, and that is Patrice Vermette, who is a longtime collaborator of Denny, as well as Kindred Spirit in the homeland of... uh, Montreal, Montreal, <laughs> Quebec, Canada, so. Oh, the Canada. The Kanadas,
1: the Canadians. He's working on Tron 3. But yeah, yeah the production design here was um, <laughs> absolutely incredible. Maybe some of the best I've ever seen.
0: I think for me, it might be the best I've ever seen. And it really stole the show. I mean, amongst an incredible crew and cast.
1: We should name our director. I'm not going to name what they've worked on, but Tom Brown... David Doran, Sammy Kalani, Tabor Lazar, Kerry Probert, Gurgly, Jurgley, R- Rieger, Rieger. And then we should also shout out the costume design because Bob Morgan and Jacqueline West, oh, like the costumes, <laughs> like I, there were things, because we just read the book and we we did the podcast about the book but some stuff for production design and costume design in this movie i could easily see them taking academy awards home for those i but they looked better than i ever could have imagined them mm-hmm. i was astonished honestly by seeing some of these things brought to life like i was absolutely astounded
0: yeah there's Just jaw dropped
1: the, like i kept moving in my chair like because i had a, like a visceral reaction to how amazing some of the stuff looked, you know?
0: I don't think I've ever seen anything where the concept art for the film probably translated like one-to-one
1: to what we ended up getting, because it is- If not better. Yeah. What is that, like a 10-to-one or one-to-ten? 10? Yeah,
0: 10-to-one, sure. Yeah. It is uh, the most incredible way you can build a world is just to show people the way things look, <laughs> and, and just not to say anything about it. <laughs> because there is so much in this book, like we said, that they can't really do adequately- when you're adapting a massive novel into a, a shorter film. So to flesh out just everything from the great houses in the novel to the order of the Bene Gesserit to the Imperium to the legions of Sardacar to the Fremen, it is just they are so And the look of the planets. Yeah. Well characterized
1: by the environments and, and the, the sets and the, the textures and the sets, the textures of their clothing, the textures of even the floor of where they were on Mm Caledon, there were little hexagon tiles. Yeah. And that was just like a small little touch, but like you might have not even seen it, but it was full of just hexagon tile. And it's just like, oh my gosh, so much thought and detail went into this movie and no one loves perhaps open
0: like wide spaces and negative spaces than denny villeneuve if blade runner was any indication even in arrival like you have in the interior of those you call them ships i guess the, those alien vessels mm-hmm. there's so much space mm-hmm. and what denny loves to do is just put a character in a frame And you just show them how big the place they are in. And it
1: plays so well on an IMAX screen. I'm not going to shout out all the names because there's too many, but there was a massive art department.
0: And visual effects team too. Visual
1: effects team, makeup department, stunt team. The sound department was quite large for this.
0: Oh God, the sound design in this movie.
1: Unreal. (laughs) Better than I could have imagined things sounding as well, you know? And it was loud. Uh, Visual effects team, obviously huge then you know the camera electrical department grips grip team all that mm-hmm. stuff but everyone if anyone out there that worked on Dune is listening to this you guys uh, just made a masterpiece basically and and gave and i couldn't be more excited for the sequel
0: yeah i just want to say thank you to everybody that worked on that for bringing part of my formative years to life it's literally a dream come to life the only thing i'm disappointed in is that there's not more there will be yeah eventually <laughs> years from now <laughs>
1: So let's talk about the cast. Who stars in this film? So many people. Talk about an ensemble. Yeah, hugely ensemble, but also
0: just great casting for the characters that you're trying to represent. Pretty much all the way around. I had a couple that I wish were a little different, but I agree. I can run through them. Our young hero himself, the one, the Quiznots, the Quiz, the, <laughs> the Quiznos, Satara. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Atreides, <laughs> is played by Timothy Chalamet.
1: Yep, we just saw him in the French Dispatch. Yeah. <laughs> what a hairdo he yeah. had. That was super fun.
0: Yeah. Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica Atreides, his mother. Possibly... Chef's kiss. Not only one of the most beautiful women alive, but what a magnificent performer. This role was interesting for her because she spent half of this film being very emotional and crying, kind of. And I, it was gut-wrenching to watch her. Well, not just her, but a whole people, but especially her because what she represents dealing with this kind of very emotional knowing that they're marching to their death, essentially, and her having to watch her son go all through these things. She is incredible, and she really is, I think, such a huge part of this story. And she is in the novel, too, but she was probably
1: my favorite part of the casting here for that reason. She was great. Yeah. She's one of my... I mean, if not my favorite actress, I think she's like my favorite actress. She's, she's got an
0: incredible range and she, she really got to show it. Yeah. Uh, also, Oscar Isaac was the Duke Leto Atreides, the father. He did well. Gurney Halleck was Josh Brolin.
1: I saw him once at an ice cream shop in LA. Oh, that's right.
0: <laughs> that story is awesome. Yeah. He was great. Smaller role than I would have thought compared to... Well, he comes back in the next one. That's right. One of the few characters that lives through the first half of the book. Yeah. But what did come up in his negative space was Duncan Idaho's character, or mm-hmm. the character of Duncan Idaho, played by Jason Momoa. Momoa. He really got to do a lot in this movie, and that was cool to see him. And Javier Bardem was Stilgar, commander of Siege Tabor of the Fremen. He was awesome. Only had two scenes, but he was very memorable. His presence is so understated yet powerful. And Leet Kynes was played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, which was a gender swap. She was good though. In the book, this character is a man, but it doesn't really matter. And I think she did an incredible job with that character in the really limited amount of time that she had. She was one of the points, the way her story arc ended is different in the book, but it didn't bother me too much because she went out like a badass. She was captured and then re-released and died in a similar way where she was uh. Uh, set off wounded to wander the desert until she Past and then she dies in a pre-spice mass buildup and explosion. In this movie, it's a little different. Anyway, Stephen McKinley Henderson was Thufir Hawat, probably the character that had the I least amount of time compared to what he is in the book spent on screen. And I wish we could get more of him and like deleted scenes or something. And we'll see him more in the second yeah. half as well. Yeah, he's in a lot more, and I I loved him though in this. I thought he was so good. Yeah, he's crazy. He was one of my favorite parts of Devs, which is the. Alex Garland production from a few years ago. Right. He's great. I've never seen him in anything except devs, but when he activates his Mentat powers and his eyes glaze over and turn white, very cool. Very great representation without really explaining anything about the Mentats at any point in this movie. Just another good example of how you can show something and not tell you about it, but you understand what's happening here. The villains, we have Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. What a phenomenal depiction of that guy who is just this massive, gluttonous, massive flesh, (laughs) always hungry, always conniving. I wish we had more time with him as well in this movie and especially him interacting with his henchman who is... Peter DeVries, played by David Desmalkian, who was great. Also didn't have much to do here, unfortunately, because of the runtime, but... Yeah, they were both amazing. Dave Bautista was Beast Raban Harkonnen, his nephew, who kind of fulfills also the role of Fade Ratha from the books, who we'll probably see in the sequel. But this is the character that got to really... I mean, we didn't see a whole lot of him either, but he's hes a ruthless presence. Dave Bautista really always brings his physicality to the role. Totally. I mean, that, that's what he is. He's a... He's a massive guy. Yeah. And then uh, Chen Chang, who was Doctor Yue, mm-hmm. who is the betrayer, the one who lights the spark that ignites the fire, as I think Oscar Isaac's character said in Star Wars, that burns the whole thing down. That guy, and he also used that small amount of screen time very well. There's Zendaya as Shawnee, who we got to see Cheney all of ten minutes. <laughs> she was great. She's in a lot of parts, but she didn't
1: actually meet our main characters until the end.
0: Yeah, very important for part two. And then Jameis was Babs Alussan Moken, and Charlotte Rampling played the Reverend Mother Mohaim, Mohaim, who tested Paul at the beginning. What a presence. Again, we could go on, but that's most of the names that people will know. Phenomenal cast. Yes. Hopefully we can get Sting back for the sequel. That should be pretty funny, wouldn't it? Well, he's pretty old now, but yeah, it would be pretty funny. I'm really curious to see who they'll cast as Fade for the sequel But yeah, I will say, obviously, in a two and a half hour film, condensing the first half of the book, which is an easy 300 pages, a lot of these characters' roles were reduced, like I said, as we focus on Paul and Paul's family specifically. But it was great. And we got a lot of Duncan Idaho, who I will say, as we continue to uh, play with spoilers, once again, spoiler warning, I guess, Duncan dies in this film, but is revived, in a manner of speaking, for the sequels and is a huge part of the story moving forward, as I recall and he's brought back to life as a synthetic doppelganger, I think, because in this, crazy. in this universe, there are no aliens, really, but there are a lot of genetic abominations. And one of those synthetic creatures is essentially like a human uh, that is synthesized. I haven't read Dune Messiah, the sequel, but I think that doppelganger assumes that the memories maybe of their past identity or at least is made to believe they are they are that person right so duncan idaho does return not for part two of this cinematic installment but if you want to keep reading the books they do bring duncan back and he is important hmm. i haven't read them yet but i definitely want to go read the rest of the series now as i'm writing that high for probably a while to yeah. come
1: <laughs> so at this point we haven't done a fake commercial since episode <laughs> 16 or 17. Because we've been getting so many real offers for <laughs> sponsors. So here's a quick word from our sponsor.
3: My love, have you tried our Malone Detroit? This spice has certain geriatric properties. It is the giver of life, the preserver of life. The flavor that you cannot name that is new every time you try it. The expander of minds. We are the combined Honnets Ober Advancer Mercantiles, or Chom for short. We control all economic affairs across the cosmos. We create a supply and a demand. The spice must flow. Everyone depends on the spice. Come to Arrakis and try the spice. We just open a new melangerie. We bake the spice melange into baked goods just for you. We have a Spice Muffin, Spice Cake, a Spice Liqueur, a Spice croissant. my god. Mwah! Nothing you have ever tasted is like the spice. The first time you try it, it is new every time. It is like a cinnamon. Once you try the spice, nothing compares. Life loses its luster. A common side effect of the spice is the eyes of the bath. It turns the eyes blue within blue. No more white, only blue. People sometimes look at you funny. It is fine, it gives you prescience. The spice will allow you to see future past and present all at once. If you take the spice with your friends and family, you must be careful, you become extremely horny. The spice is often used as an aphrodisiac for an orgy. Spice is often uh, used in an incestuous breeding between family members to create special bloodlines, you see. Quisaz Hadarak is one such incestuous child. That is not something the Emperor would tell you. It is our secret of the Chom. We are the proprietors of the spice across the universe, from Arakin to your table. The spice must flow. We are chom <laughs> <laughs> The Perry Malangerie.
1: I mean, you can say it. I'm not, I can't do a French accent. Yes, you can. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what I'm doing? You sound like Lemure from- Lemur? Beauty and the Beast. Beauty
0: and the Beast. They do say that. They say every time you do the spice, it's a new experience. Can you imagine? Except for the part where you're addicted for life and will die otherwise if you stop taking it. Welcome back.
3: (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast.
1: We should just talk about the movie. Really, our reaction to it the way that the book writes some of this stuff, it's very much psychological. It's in the head, in each character's head a lot of the times, and you're hearing a lot of their thoughts. And so what Denny had to do here in creating this world and showing that on screen is he had to communicate with the frame using characters looking at each other or Oftentimes, using body language, or looking down, or looking up, or giving someone a stern look, or a worried look, or so, I thought that that was done really well. As far as instead of hearing the thoughts of the person, mm-hmm. which is how Frank Herbert wrote it, you still understand what that character is going through emotively. And honestly, it's not easy to do that for directors to do that. And Denny is a master at it. Yeah, you know, he's a master at directing an actor to do that.
0: I think that speaks not just to the mastery of the filmmaking from the crew, but also like I said to the intention of representing the book in that way because mm-hmm. Totally. They wanted to depict those subtleties like you said. It's not that it's super subtle, but it's there for those who are looking for it. Yeah. Even right off the bat when the Imperium lands and the Bene Gesserit walks out and exchanges a glance with Jessica. It is, mm-hmm. the tension is palpable mm-hmm. in the gaze. Mm-hmm. And it is, I'm so happy they fleshed out the hand signaling because that's such an important thing. I mean, even David Lynch in his 1984 version had a voiceover for Paul because there's just so much going on, like you said, in the heads of these characters that you just can't convey in a, in a very effective way, mm-hmm. I think, to maintain your level of, uh, I don't know what to call it. Comprehension or understanding. Yeah, but to also make it not campy and yeah, hokey. sure. And to balance that line, because a lot of that is so heady, a lot of that vocabulary and stuff like that, it was so just good to see as a fan of both the novel and of, you know, cinema visually represent those things to show and
1: not tell. Yeah. The exposition was done just enough. So when they did have to tell you something, there's only, I think like two or three times Paul was actually like looking at this book but it was, you know, a little projector that had this amount of knowledge, kind of like the internet that would tell you what you needed to know about something. Mm -hmm. And that voiceover that basically sounds like a professor or something would explain the terminology or the things that we needed to know about what was going to happen next or about some important piece of information that for a viewer that doesn't know anything about Dune would need to know before advancing in the story. To go off your point as well, the lines that they did use, the
0: dialogue that they did include in the script, was so much of it lifted straight from the novel. How cool was that?
1: I was blown away.
0: Especially having just read it or like you listened to it, to hear those lines just come to life on the big screen, so much of it was verbatim.
1: It was almost all of it verbatim. It was like, this is literally like page for page watching the book come to life. It was insane.
0: And then also, like you said, to see the technology represented there pretty close to what I had imagined as I was reading it both recently and like back in the day, like even as you said, the film books, the way they project Mm -hmm. from such a small device was Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty close to what I had in mind. And it, that's also an incredible visual thing just to flavor your movie with. Some of the, the visual effects team just got to probably have a field day with making these environments. But yeah, all the technology was incredible to watch come to life from those little devices, even things like suspension lamps in Castle Caladan on Caladan, all the way to the Ornithopters on Dune to see those dragon wings
1: like come to life and fly around. You also just immediately understood how the technology worked. Yeah. You didn't really need any explanation because it all just makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, you know, you see it and you understand it. There's no real head scratching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no open endedness to where it's going to leave your mind wondering what is happening. So, again, for people that aren't familiar with the Dune universe, you should be able to understand apart from some of the terminology that they use.
0: Yeah, it has that, and we talked about this, I think, in the the book podcast, it has that retro futuristic feel of that Star Wars kind of style of, it is in the future, but it's also in the past. And so you're not seeing like high-tech weaponry, you're seeing swords and shields, energy shields. It's year 10,000 something, right? Yeah, it's like 10,191. So like early 90s. (laughs) Yeah, and- Again, they convey those things, like you said, in such an intuitive way. Even when they have to explain it, they do it cleverly, like in the beginning when Josh Brolin as Gurney Halleck is fighting Paul, they're sparring just to kind of set the stage for what the combat will look like in the film and the fighting and he's briefly just going back and forth with paul about like the mechanics of how these things work like Mm -hmm. the slow blade penetrates the shield Mm -hmm. stuff like that Mm -hmm. and you get to see it as well as Mm -hmm. they're sparring and so you get just enough exposition and dialogue and the rest of it is just shown to you Mm -hmm. and it feels good watching it because you assume a level of intelligence and perceptiveness
1: of your audience yes that's seriously on point. And I've said this before, but one of the marks of a good filmmaker is a filmmaker that shows and doesn't tell Mm -hmm. and assumes that there's a level of intelligence for the audience member that's going to be beholding the thing that you're creating. So I love that Denny just shows and doesn't tell as much as he possibly can, because that is, in my opinion, like a true style of filmmaking where it is artistic enough to, again, have subtext, and ambiguity where it needs to have it so it doesn't come off like every other i don't know blockbuster film that we see you know (laughs) venom (laughs) 2 or just anything i mean the greatest example i think in today's day and age are the fast and the furious films or something oh yeah it's just brainless as (laughs) fuck yeah for sure
0: Budget reported of 165 million, and that's actually more than Blade Runner by a small amount, technically, <laughs> because the budget for Blade Runner was initially—this is Denny's Blade Runner—was initially like 90 or 100 million, and then it ballooned up through production to about 150 million, reportedly. So that was a bit of a disaster for the studios, and then I think barely making its money back on the
1: return. And then they spent even more money on this one.
0: Yeah, by a little bit. But That's I think early. they I think they had Denny rein it in. And I'm sure for part two they'll probably be willing to put even a little bit more into the pot to sweeten sure. the deal. Sure. Yeah. And I can't wait to see what they have
1: planned. Me too.
0: I think you mentioned the comparisons for something like Lord of the Rings. But if we do get three parts of Dune and each one just becoming more bombastic
1: than the last... Do you think Denny would want to be locked into Dune films for like, I don't know, like a seven-parter? Like, because... Oh, adapting, for more than three? Adapting all the books?
0: That would be too much. I don't
1: think he would want to do it. I don't think he should do it because... <laughs> I love that he's still excited enough to like... Yeah. He's like, I'm writing the second one. We're going into production. Yeah. I love
0: it. I love that man. But I hope... Uh, you know, you don't want to get jammed into a creative rut like so many directors and writers have yeah, been. Yeah, so. sure. But I'm sure he'll
1: do his vision justice wherever that ends in the next five years or so. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in just knowing what happens in the universe. Yeah. Especially because like we've talked about, Paul doesn't turn out to be a good dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the vision that he has at the end of this movie about the jihad, people rallying under his name and Carrying the flags of the House of Atreides into the galaxy and causing a lot of destruction, you know, kind of wrecks him for a little bit, as it does in the book, you know?
0: They don't say jihad in this movie. They say, I think Paul says, either holy war or holy crusade.
1: Yeah, like a conquest.
0: But it's essentially the same. He does see the vision of that Atreides banner, the green and black, waved, mm-hmm. as he says, across the universe as the Fremen are his holy army, you know, his, yeah. his fanatics. So obviously... Any way you spin it, whoever gets put into that place, it's going to be a mixed bag of good and evil things to come because, yeah. you know, it's a crusade. And if history has taught us anything, and it's certainly what Herbert was drawing from, is our own religious... Zealot tree. History. Yeah, of Earth. A lot of people get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there are many people that die, especially in this movie. I mean, most of our characters don't make it out, and this is just a of what's to come. An omen if you will. And you'll see that more in the second half when we get it. Mm-hmm. More visions of doom, of jihad. Yeah. It is a really interesting concept because so much of this, we didn't even really touch on this in the bookcast. but so much of this a story, not just the idea of the jihad, but also like the characters themselves, like the Fremen, are pulled from Middle Eastern backgrounds, mm. uh, specifically Muslim, the Islamic history, if you will. And I think the Fremen themselves in the universe are descendants of Muslim people who are sort of galactic wanderers. And, wow. But we did say in the book cast, I think, that they might share some history from the prison planet of the Sardaukar. Yeah, which but, I was
1: surprised to see, by the way. Yeah,
0: but they are literally descendants of an Islamic people in this universe. And it's so interesting because you can't, in really a Hollywood production, use the word jihad. I mean, things are so sensitive in the 21st century when you think about vocabulary like that. But I think translating those themes well is just another feather in the cap of the writers and the crew of this movie because it is still essentially that. Those things are here. And, you know, God willing, inshallah, (laughs) so to speak, we ever see more than part two. I mean, there's so much story to tell here that moving in that direction of, conquest and crusade that you could really take even more risks and show the vulnerability of the masses,
2: right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't know. No, I mean, I I agree. Totally. It's an ambitious story to tell. It is. In Uh, many ways. In a way, because so much of this movie is not cheesy. It's done in a very artistic and provocative way that it tells the story of a character that thinks what he's doing is correct and then ends up eventually becoming the bad guy. And it tells that same story that I think George Lucas wanted to tell with Anakin Skywalker Mm. and Darth Vader. And it's done so much better.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little less space opera, a little bit more
1: palatable, I think. I mean, but I agree that it would be interesting to see sort of that huge downfall because I think the book two starts like 12 or 15 years in the future after the conquest has already taken place.
0: Are you talking about Dune Messiah?
1: Yeah. I would love to see kind of like a Dune Part 2. Part 3. And then like the Part 3 just be the Dune Messiah to see sort of the cap on Paul's story. But I'm very curious to see that if in Dune Part 2, if he's going to play Paul to be like this savior protagonist, or if he is going to play like some sort of looming darkness hanging over Paul the whole time. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it's the latter because that's ultimately what Frank Herbert wanted. So
0: yeah. I think it will be.
1: Yeah. Even when he was kind of owning into his role and Jessica was looking at him going, be careful the path that you're treading. And even like the misdirection with the Bene Gesserit earlier in the film saying, the Reverend Mother saying, we have other prospects Mm -hmm. that maybe there is a road that could have been taken where... Paul wasn't the Kwisatz Haderach. And I thought that that was an interesting idea because maybe it is about the person's choices at the end of the day, because there's also a lot of misdirection with the visions that he's having. Yeah. And they don't always play out the way that he sees them. True. So I thought that that was so interesting because the one person whose mind can bridge space and time, maybe the person in a way sort of does have to own it. And I think that that was sort of a brilliant idea that Denny may have pulled out of the subtext of Frank Herbert's book and then put into the movie. Because I did sort of think about that a few times while listening or reading the book, but I didn't really put it together until I just saw the movie.
0: Yeah. I spent a little bit more time just because I didn't have the luxury of a 1.5 times speed on my read compared to your listen. And I'm already a slow... I'm already a slow reader, but I, I think I pulled that out, that idea out of the text as well. And I'm glad they not only incorporated that, but really tried to flush the idea out of...
1: Yeah. The interesting thing about that, though, and I think maybe this is just adding to your point uh, a few minutes ago, is that if Paul is the one to choose the path of being like the chosen one, then maybe that is to say that the corruption of the charismatic leaders, the thing that Frank Herbert wanted to show through the story of the Book of Dune, happens because the Quetzalcoatl gives in to their indulgences, gives in to their sort of... Baser nature. Yeah, because he's basically... It's almost like, oh, I think I could become this person. Yeah. I'm going to just be this person now mm-hmm. and claim to be this person and have all these followers. And so it becomes, you know, what the King James Version of the Bible calls like a puffed-up individual. Yeah. Where they're full of themselves. And they end up acting out of this very selfish nature that's honestly sort of manipulative. Mm-hmm. And so I could foresee Timothy Chalamet as Paul, because he kind of was acting that way toward the end, being like this very charismatic, manipulative leader, much like a Hitler or something, which again, is the thing that Frank Herbert wanted. So
0: yeah, you're absolutely right. And they did definitely harp on that in the book as it moved forward. The idea of what Paul called it in the book, his terrible purpose. Right. And how he was, uh, you know, fighting against that for so much of the book, and then by the end, I can't remember if it was through vision or something that actually came to pass, but he essentially like had embraced the quality of that role. And certainly yeah. through the eyes of others, particularly Lady Jessica and Gurney in the book, it seemed like he was giving himself over to that kind of, yeah. not just the role of it, but like you said, almost to be falling into that darkness of what it represented, mm-hmm. that sort of gluttony of power Yeah, maybe totally not even like to fault Paul, but that's just how people are, you know, even as the chosen one. If Anakin Skywalker has taught us anything, it's that alluring quality of ultimate power,
1: both literally and through the people. I would kill like actually kill to see Denny make a Star Wars film. God. with this magnitude like or just like remake <laughs> remake the prequels the story of Anakin never knew I wanted that until now I know, I know. They, You were welcome. See that's what the 100th episode brings. <laughs> it brings enlightenment just like the Bene Gesserit
0: praise us <laughs>
1: <laughs> What I was gonna say is Paul at the end too He's accepted by the Fremen and he's walking and he sees the person riding the worm and he's like desert power And he's mm. kind of like F- yeah, like Th- yeah. I'm gonna f- it up now. Like I, it kind of seemed like yeah. they could go in that direction, and I sort of hope that they do. They have to. He even talked about becoming emperor. Yeah, like literal emperor of the galaxy. He basically stated in this movie that his plan was to like basically the conquer the universe. Yeah.
0: Yep. That's certainly. The boldness of his plan is—I don't remember him
1: saying it that early, but he tells that—that that
0: was the scene in the book where it happened when they meet with Kynes and he explains because he has to try to win her over or right. him in the book, not just with his right. charismatic and no, but his logic. yeah, his his yeah. plan. Yeah, and she's like or he's like even in the book, oh, a little ambitious young man, <laughs> but he—that's his plan—is to wager the threat of this news getting out and brokering war versus. Sure. Well, I can marry into the royal family, which he eventually does, and uh, assume the ultimate power, like you said, the emperorship, the imperium. Yeah, which is what happens at the end of the story. I can't wait to see that moment, the fateful meeting at the end of the book in the next part. As an avid fan of the book, I've already said I love the way Denny adapted it. I have a couple things that keep this from being an absolute perfect adaptation for me. As far as like filmmaking goes, in its own right, it's great. But uh, it's little things like uh, towards the end of the film, <laughs> they spend a lot of time outside. In broad daylight, because if they're outside in the book, it's imperative that your still suit is perfectly equipped or Mm. else you're losing precious moisture. And I think that idea could have been hammered home a little bit harder in the movie and just exactly how precious moisture is here, which they explain in the film. But when you see them walking around in the day, it's a little bit disruptive to that momentum, I think, of that idea again as an adaptation those scenes like did take place indoors in the books any amount of time though is too much time that's the idea if you're out in the sun you're dying in the in the world the book creates like even if it's dawn or dusk you're in dangerous territory but again I mean it's not a big problem for me it was the other thing it's probably just some of the ways they condensed scenes and characters but Hmm. Again, that's something that can't be helped. And I think they did it as well as they could have. Fleshing out
1: UA's betrayal a little bit more. They didn't say the remember the tooth line. Yeah, remember the tooth. Which I think is because of the Lynch movie and the kind of the, the hokey hokiness behind that. Yeah. Remember the tooth, the tooth, the tooth. Mm.
0: But honestly, I couldn't have asked for more for everything else. And I only wish I had more <laughs> because totally. if Denny had been given, you know, even the chance to do a longer cut or film both parts at once, I think we would have... Because Denny, the way he puts it, or at least did with Blade Runner, is that he always releases his director's cut and, for better or for worse, does not allow himself an extended edition. And he, he's really adamant, despite how he truly feels I couldn't speak on that, but he's adamant that the movie you see in theaters is the way he intends it to be, despite what has to have been, just from some of the rumors I've heard of things like Josh Brolin playing the ballast set on set, there has to be scenes
1: left on the chopping room floor for this film, especially one of this scope and scale. Yeah, one of the scenes I missed the most, which is minor, there's was, there was a couple little, little tiny things, but one of the ones I missed the most was Jessica showing up to this sort of like vegetation greenery room Yeah. And getting the message from the previous person, like the lady of the house that was there previously saying, Hey, there's might be an assassination attempt. Yeah. Instead it just happened. Like it it just cut to that. I didn't expect for it to happen so quickly. The hunter seeker part.
0: And the whole subplot of them, of different characters, like the cat and mouse game of trying to figure out who the traitor is, like, which yeah. which creates a lot of pivotal scenes in the second half. And a lot of tension yeah, people, between the characters. Yeah, people thinking that Jessica is the traitor. Yeah. That whole thing for time is, you know, cut from the script, which is totally. fine.
1: But also, Through Fear has a lot more to play with because of the blame game that's going on. Yeah, that's a huge part of his character. Yeah. And Gurney, too. Yeah. When Gurney finds Jessica alive toward the end of the book, Mm -hmm. he like almost tries to kill her because he still thinks that she was the one to betray the house of Atreides. Yeah. That's a great scene in the book. I know. And they're not going to be able to do it. I mean, maybe they can, but they, I I think they could in part two flavor that in. And then Paul has to explain, they also didn't talk about the conditioning of the doctors and why that's so important. So I feel like they're going to leave that out. But Paul has to explain to Gurney to get him off of his mom. (laughs) Basically, like, no, conditioning of these doctors can be broken. I've seen it happen.
0: You know what scene we didn't get that may be causing my my memory leak, if you will, in the book is the dinner party. Mm. which you learn so much about the characters, the story, and the world in this dinner party scene, Yeah, uh, which is another point of characterization for Lea Kynes, who I wish we got more of in this movie. Just the absolute power that that character holds, I guess. I don't know. that As far as characters who got the short stick, I think that's the greatest thorn in my side is Kynes, but it's fine. Yeah, I'm just drawing blanks because I wish I had more yeah. Dune totally. in,
1: my, in my vans right now. Yeah, It's such a world that you want to live in that you just like, Yeah. You just want more. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't really want to live in that. In Onorakis. I'll live in Caladan. No, I want to live in the movie. Yeah, I want to live in that. I
0: want to exist in that mind space. But just to say another piece about the sound in this movie, I really enjoyed that kind of whispering ambient quality they had to personify and characterize the planet it seemed like the way dune is a living thing almost like a living organism in and of itself and whenever paul's on the sands and even especially the first time when he has that epiphany moment where he's next to the crawler and he's getting high on spice for the first time oh yeah and you hear like the cosmos or dune itself whispering to him through that way yeah and that's where you hear like Quisatz out of rock uh evoking that terrible purpose within him. I thought that was really cool. I love that cosmic mystical element
1: that it had. Yeah, it's perfect. And what's so interesting too, is that even with it being mystical, there's still an element of explanation because mm-hmm. it's the spice, you know, you don't really yeah. need to know anything else. Then the spice is the thing that causes exceptional perception and humanistic psychic ability, like that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Even in the book, the exact nature of the spice is elusive. Like the way that spice is so unlike anything in this universe that the Imperium knows of mm-hmm. in this story. It's so weird that it allows things that are just not
1: typically possible, but it's cool. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't really catch when I went through the book was that it doesn't allow for interstellar space travel. It allows for the navigator who's on the ship that's controlling the ship to determine the pathway without hitting anything else. Safe passage. And yeah. so it's not even that the spice like powers the ships or the yeah. Stuff like that. The spice is always influencing people mm-hmm. and enhancing people in a way. And again, like Gabe said, sometimes to the point of where they're almost like no longer human because of it. And that's what the navigators on the ships are like.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I love the dancing style of fighting they had in the movie. Yeah. It was very floaty, which is interesting to see. And like the way they used suspensers. Another tiny, like minuscule gripe I have is I wish at the end when he's fighting Jameis that they shot it a little less cutty, and we got to see more of like... Because the choreography is such an important part in the book, the way Herbert describes it, the minutiae of movement, the economy of movement, and also like the way the intellect of each character plays into that, like the way Paul is constantly out-thinking and outdoing, even just by a small margin, his opponent. I just wish it was like, like a John Wick thing where you just let the choreography stand for itself. I wish... I mean, I'm always... It's funny as an editor because I'm like, cut less. <laughs> Even if it's less work, that's beside the point. I just want to see the unbroken shot of these characters moving about each other. But it's fine. Like you said, they did a great job depicting it. I just wish it was unbroken, I -hmm. guess, editing-wise.
1: I know. Sometimes I wish I could re-edit movies that I love. Yeah. Just like to be able to see the stuff that wasn't put in the movie. Okay, we have camera A holding on this shot for three minutes. And Mm -hmm. it's like cut in with cameras B, C, and D. And you're like, I want to see camera A. Yep. curious if you wanted to talk briefly about this versus the 1984 David Lynch version
0: yeah the contrast couldn't be more pronounced what David Lynch did and he I love what he did because it's so
1: it's almost like what I imagined when I read the book yeah it is in its own way faithful because
0: it is very stylized it is as far as the production design yeah I really like
1: david lynch's
0: version but it is very campy it is very like cheesy schlocky is a word i like to use a lot on this cast but i couldn't even really define that to you other than to say dune 1984 is very campy Mm -hmm. and that's fine so much incredible 80s science fiction is that way because of both technological limitation and
1: also just what science fiction was at that time yeah but what he did do for the time i thought was pretty good his depiction and a lot of yeah. the setting and the uh, the set pieces themselves were spot on. Yeah, to and what I, I kind of thought they would be look like for sure.
0: I even like drew some of those comparisons from what Denny did. Especially mm-hmm. there are shots in Lynch's Dune where it is like obscure shots of you're not even sure what you're looking at when it comes to some of the architecture of the world and of the ships and stuff like that. And I love that. And I even the way Denny talks about Lynch's Dune is inc- it's like the perfect diplomatic answer because people will often ask Denny about Lynch's version, and he'll just say it's not what I would have done. But I love the way he refers to Lynch as a master, and he's like, you know, he made his own thing. Uh, you know, even if the end product wasn't exactly what Lynch wanted because of studio interference, mm-hmm. it is still very much Lynch's Dune. And Denny says Lynch made his own Dune. I'm gonna make another version that is going to honor the source material in a different way. We're gonna sure. make it make it modern. And the extent of the comparison I, I, is basically just to say that it's it's a much more campy version, much more silly version. Even the interpretation of the Baron in Lynch's Dune is so funny like I can't remember that actor's name but he really chewed the scenery <laughs> in the best way yeah he's a madman and in this one much more subdued performance everything Denny makes is you know it's it's more subdued it's more realistic it's understated yeah. and uh, that's one of the reasons I like it so much is because as much as I enjoy a good campy 80s sci-fi this kind of a movie is just really what brings my imagination to life and is beyond compare yeah I agree and I think It is uh, definitely the benchmark for me moving forward for the genre and even just blockbusters in general. This level of care into every aspect of the movie is quite phenomenal. Go see it. I would definitely recommend it. In IMAX. It is, once again, just part one of two. I didn't hate the way it did. I think it was a good stopping point, battling that part of me that wants just more. I think going into it, it's not imperative that you are very familiar with the source material. I will say it is loud. So if you're sensitive to that, you know, <laughs> but it's great. If I'm going to try to get my family to see it, and I never would recommend usually like science. Wow. Like, oh, like this, this that's sort of movie. Huge. Are you going to tell them that you have a podcast too? No, <laughs> I think I have, they don't care. But yeah, I'm going to drag my mom to it. Cause I'm like, this is something you have to see. Like, I don't care what you take away from it. You should see this. You need to see it. And I'm going to make you see it because I want a sequel and I need to support my
1: local Denny Villeneuve. <laughs> Since we've recorded this podcast, Warner Brothers greenlit the sequel. Yeah. To Dune. With a tentative date. For Dune Part 2 with a tentative date of October 20th. 2023. Just under two
0: years from now. Are you happy? I am, I was going to say livid with happiness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was pretty much a guarantee after we saw the numbers from the first weekend from both theaters and streaming sites. So, but to see it in text, to read the words, it was a sight to behold. And then to see everybody talking about it, like, yeah, yeah. Denny and Tim Chalamet and Chalamet, 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 Chalamet. I guess they're planning on shooting over the summer. So things are moving quickly. I think that two years, a pretty quick turnaround for a movie of this scope. And we're toying with the idea that, I mean, this could be one of Warner Brothers new big properties and the potential of a third part even with dune messiah the second book in the series um,
1: completing a trilogy of films
0: amongst other things they have planned we know there's at least one hbo max series in the works surrounding i think sisterhood of dune with the b'nai jesserit so there's stuff happening and it's brewing very, if you will i'm very excited just like
1: the coffee yeah he said the next one will be even more cinematic if that's possible yeah <laughs> denny what a guy classic denny classic denny <laughs> Uh, out of all 100 episodes that we've done so far, what's your favorite thing that we've done? It's funny because Dune, the last
0: cast, number 99, that was our first like actual literature, our first novel that we did. So this was precious to me, getting the chance to talk about one of the books that inspired me so much, and then to see it come to life on the big screen, it might be my favorite part of what we've done over these year and nine months. But also, looking back on our first 10 episodes, that was such a special time because of how insane it was. Yeah, the nature of uh cramming that out before the oscars totally i mean i also look fondly on like the weird episodes we've done like capitalism <laughs> i don't know it's just been a great ride and i'm glad we did it and we're doing it and we'll hopefully continue to do it yeah thank you for having me as part of this
1: partnership oh thank you for doing this with me this is great it's i've never done anything like i literally this. couldn't do it without you like I, Be very I, kind. I, I think your voice and your intuition to my personality means so much to the advancement of this podcast and my motivation to continue doing it that I don't think it would happen without you.
0: I'm the chocolate mousse to your fresh farm strawberry. There you go.
1: <laughs> I'll take it. Is this where we kiss? <laughs> <laughs> we'll say see you in episode one hundred and one. We, we're not slowing down. There are so many movies coming out. We already have episodes planned all the way through like 115. so. It's
0: been a pleasure to have people listening to it too, even a few. We've yeah. talked with some of our friends about, and it's
1: created a lot of interesting conversation. <laughs> totally. I was actually going to say, don't reach out to Gabe. If anyone wants to reach out though, <laughs> if anyone wants to reach out at all, please hit me up on the Instagram, the Cold Popcast Instagram. I would love more feedback from anyone Or anyone wants to DM me or just reach out. I see listeners listening to us from all over the world. And I'm like, who are these people? But please reach out and say hi. I would love to hear from you. love to hear your opinion. We might even have you on the cast because that's (gasps) what we do. Wow. We just bring people on here just like, let's talk about this stuff. But yeah, reach out to me. It'll probably be me, Steven, responding because Gabe doesn't give a damn about Instagram. The
0: second best part for me is the conversation it creates. <laughs> the first part for me to you know process it on my own that's my favorite part so. Yeah, yeah I, i'm only doing this because we have good chemistry sure <laughs> and it's fun and it's rewarding
1: yeah and it ends there for gabe he doesn't want to lo- no, he doesn't want to hear <laughs> gabe doesn't want to hear what you guys have to say <laughs> don't say that i want to hear what you have to say i, do, I love talking about it